It's a, it's a tremendous hymn, isn't it? This hymn, you probably must have heard it, Jerusalem. According to Songs of Praise, it's the number one uh, uh, popular hymn in the UK. According to public voting, it's, uh, it was Princess Diana's favorite hymn. And it's the hymn that's sung every time the Women's Institute meet. They start with this rousing patriotic hymn. Uh, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? You may or may not know, but William Blake, the chap there, uh, his poem inspired this. Uh, him and it was inspired by the legend of a teenage Jesus, Jesus in his teenage years who travels to England under the protection of his uncle. His uncle is called Joseph, Joseph from the town of Arimathea, uh, supposedly. Mercifully, William Blake includes a question mark at the end of each line because the answer is no. <laughs> a resounding no, he didn't. He didn't come here. He didn't walk upon these hills. Jerusalem wasn't builded here. It would have been great, uh, but there's zero evidence for that. Uh, no evidence that these events of, these hymn, of this hymn happened here or indeed anywhere else. But it's a song to rouse spirits, to engender a feeling of patriotism, isn't it? And uh, it's part of British culture. But it's a great story. It's a great story. But what's it all about? Is it based on anything at all, this legend? Let's take a look this morning. You see, as well as Jesus' main disciples and followers, Jesus had other people around him who we don't normally talk about. They don't make our Bible studies or our Easter sermons usually. And they were the outer circle, the minor characters in the plot. Any good film or story has minor characters, doesn't it? Uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan like I am, there's the main characters, Frodo, Gandalf, and Marion Pippin, Borodin. But then in the background, you've got these other characters, Galadriel, Thorin, elves and dwarves, who make the story. If you like Spider-Man, as I do, there's Peter Parker, Mary Jane, the Green Goblin. Uh, but then in the background, you've got uh, his Aunt May and Gwen and these other characters. Or if you watch Bridgerton, which I don't, I believe there are also major characters and minor characters. Nod to Bridgerton. Similarly... In the accounts of Easter, there are the big characters. Obviously, there's Jesus, there's Pilate, there's Judas, there's Peter who denies him. And, and, and rightly, we spend time on all of these characters. But dig beneath the surface of the Easter accounts, and we find other little-known but intriguing characters. They're not given much space in our Bibles, but they're there. Truth be told, we can get by without even thinking about them, without mentioning them. They, don't just seem, they just don't seem that important. But if we ignore them, we miss some great stories and some potential insights. In this outer orbit of Jesus' followers, we see many of the women. They probably actually did a lot, but they just weren't written about. For example, Mary of Magdala, uh, a, a, a woman whom, who Jesus healed, and then she's one of the first at the tomb on Sunday morning. Or Simon of Cyrene, did you see him mentioned in the reading? This chap who, Jesus is walking along the streets and they just pull this chap out of the crowd, Simon from Cyrene, and make him carry the cross. What was that about? And uh, intriguing, the intriguing character, Joseph, 
from the town of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, not to be confused with any other Joseph in the Bible. And the place where you were from was often used as part of your name. So Joseph of Arimathea, Mary of Magdala, Paul of Tarsus, or indeed Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, So this is Joseph of the Judean town of of, uh, Arimathea. He was a minor character. They're all minor characters, and they only get brief mentions. But I think this outer circle of characters is really fascinating. Not least, because that's probably where I would have placed myself. I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't have been bold enough or had enough faith to be one of Jesus' main followers, to give up everything to follow this man. But I think I would have been fascinated enough to see Let's follow this man. Let's let's just track him. See what he's doing. This is interesting. What's he doing that for? When did he say that? Interesting, fascinating. St. Joseph of Arimathea followed Jesus from a distance. An excellent example of a distant but fascinated follower. And he is important, though, because all four gospel writers write about this man, Joseph. All four thought fit to include him. So what do we know about this man from the shadows? Who appears in all four Gospels and what can we learn? Well, let's start with what did Joseph of Arimathea actually do? Okay. We know what he didn't do. He didn't do any of these things. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful legend. I'll tell you a little bit about it. That Joseph of Arimathea, the legend says, was Jesus' uncle. And when Jesus was a teenager, he brought him to England. And they went around lots of towns, including Penzance, Falmouth, most of Cornwall, and Glastonbury and Sunset. And in fact, if you go to Glastonbury and Sunset, there are relics and artifacts. There's a, there's a thorn or a plant named after Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, and some of the windows there, the main church, St. John's, has a big stained glass window of Joseph of Arimathea. It's a lovely story. I wish it was true. Uh, but it isn't true. But what did he do then? What did this fellow do? And who was he? And why did he do these things? Well, let's go back to Easter weekend. We've already uh, spoke of, uh, we've already looked at the story, haven't we, of Easter weekend uh, through Luke 23. And as Christians, I think it's interesting to, to just reflect on the fact that our faith is founded on the events of a single weekend in history. Our faith is based on the events of a single weekend, Friday to Sunday, that happened in history. And it begins on Good Friday. We've already read it. The sentence is passed. We heard it. Jesus is nailed to a cross. One good man dies for all. God's son dies an appalling death, taking on everything that's wrong in the world. Everything we call wrong, he takes. All our sin, he takes. We've already heard twice. Uh, God has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. From Paul writing to the Romans, chapter 5. Jesus, uh, sorry, uh, Jesus' own body and blood we've remembered today in an act of communion. And usually we end our thoughts of Good Friday there because we want to fast forward now to Easter Sunday, to the good bit, don't we? We want to get to the good news, which is fair enough. We understand that. We want to get to the triumph. But important events took place after Jesus' crucifixion. Not least with Jesus himself, but that's another story. But certainly for those who looked after his body, important events took place. So let's press pause and not fast forward to Easter Sunday and just look at some of those for just a few minutes. So we have the cross of Good Friday. What happened next? We read it in Luke 23, and I'll just read it to you again. Jesus has died, 
Then Luke tells us, there was a man named Joseph. He was a member of the council, the ruling council that actually sentenced Jesus to death. He was a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut into rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. So Luke tells us that this Joseph of Arimathea was on the ruling council that passed the death sentence, but he hadn't agreed with the decision. So was he one of the bad guys? He was on the council. Or was he a good guy in a bad place? John then tells us a little bit more and fills in some of the background. Remember, all four gospel writers speak of this man. So John tells us in his words what happened next at the end of John 19. Later, so just after Jesus has died, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So John fills in a little bit more. He emphasizes that Joseph had been a secret disciple because he was in fear of his colleagues, effectively. And that he didn't work alone. Nicodemus, who you remember early in John's gospel, came to visit Jesus at night to ask hard questions because he too was afraid of his colleagues, afraid of his peers. He was because of fear to his reputation. Nicodemus only saw Jesus at night. But interestingly, Nicodemus was also a member of the ruling council. Together, the two of them wrap the body of Jesus in the traditional spices and prepare it for burial. Together, these two men of considerable influence, both on the ruling council, both secret disciples, coming out of the darkness, stepping out of the safety of the shade, and identifying with this dead man, Jesus. So what can we learn from Joseph and Nicodemus? I'm going to take some of these points from a book, which I'll show you in a minute, which I was asked to review last year, called Joseph of Arimathea. But Joseph, this secret disciple, basically outs himself. He comes out. He comes clean. says, I too am a disciple. Argues against the ruling council. Luke tells us, argues that he didn't agree with their decision to condemn Jesus. He breaks rank with his peers and his friends. Not an easy thing to do. He takes courage and he speaks in defense of Jesus. The council overrule him anyway and they pass the death sentence. But then Joseph teams up with his colleague Nicodemus to do the one last thing they can do, the only thing they can do now, give the body of Jesus a decent burial. Ensure a fitting burial for Christ. And they arrange it in Joseph's own new tomb. Clearly, he was wealthy as well as influential. 
You might say, well, that's not very much. Why didn't Joseph and Nicodemus stick up for Jesus? Why didn't they stand up for him and argue for him and give eloquent speeches which the gospel writers could have recorded? Wouldn't it be better if they'd stuck up for Jesus when he was alive? Well, maybe, maybe. But we mustn't underestimate the cost that these two men now pay, that they now choose to pay. Stepping forward, saying, we too believed in this Jesus. Speaking now against their colleagues, against their peers, against their friends, against the people they've worked with. And they choose to take, and it's a risk they choose to take, a price they choose to pay. Nobody made them do this. Perhaps, says the author of the book, they were driven by shame. Perhaps it was a partnership of disappointed disciples. We don't know. But they step forward and they do the one thing that they can do. Perhaps they were driven uh, by these feelings that they should have stuck up for Jesus, their lack of open witness to Jesus. But what we do know is here, here an emboldened Joseph goes to Pilate the senior guy in the town, and boldly says, will you give me the body of Jesus? Without regard anymore to his standing, his reputation. Says the author of the book, here's a picture of it. How extraordinary, he says, how extraordinary that Joseph would do this publicly after Jesus was dead. He, had nothing, he has nothing to gain and so much to lose. And that's true, isn't it? The dead Jesus wasn't going to thank them, wasn't going to bless them. They didn't know Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They don't know Jesus is going to rise from the dead. They don't know there's going to be an Easter Sunday. They don't know they're going to be on the winning side. They think they're on the losing side. But they think, let's just do the best we can for Jesus, for his body. The one thing that we can do now. And what they do know is that their colleagues will most likely, most likely ostracize them, almost certainly ridicule them. But they do it anyway, because it's the right thing to do. And it could cost them. And isn't it interesting? This is the outer circle, the minor characters. Isn't it in interesting that the inner circle, the main disciples, are nowhere to be seen? They don't ask for the body of Jesus. Peter has denied him. Mark ran away in the garden. John is nowhere to be seen. They've disappeared. In this moment, it's the outer circle of Jesus' followers who step out of the shadows. The outer circle are just emerging. This was their hour. And so lastly then, what about us? What about us? We too, says the author of the book, we too must learn to steward both our affluence and our influence. We must learn to manage our affluence, our wealth, and our influence, our reputation. Now, managing our affluence, our wealth, managing how much money we give to God, is actually pretty easy. You just have to decide to do it, and then you just set up a standing order for 10%. It's not that hard. Managing our influence, I think, is much harder. Much harder. And it's not a single action. In comparison, 
Good, steward, good stewardship of our affluence should be straightforward for Christians and easy. But good stewardship of our influence, our reputation among our colleagues, our friends, our neighbors, that's really hard. I think much harder. Laying aside, laying aside our reputation, opening, risking ourselves to ridicule, uh, maybe separation from work colleagues, from friends, from families, a tough call and more challenging. So if you are in any secular role, might be in work, might be in a club, in a society, would you break rank with your colleagues and speak truth to power at the risk of damaging your reputation? If you're a leader in a club or a society or an organization, why has God placed you in such a prominent position? Are you willing to use your influence in that organization for good? Or just among our neighbors and friends, do they even know that we're Christians? Do they even know that? Perhaps it's this willingness to risk reputation and status that actually differentiates a follower from, of Jesus from simply an admirer of Jesus. We're called to be followers, not just admirers. Joseph was, may have been late to the show, but in, this, in the hour of his calling, he took a huge risk with his reputation and his standing. Last Sunday, Jonathan gave a similar message, actually, about Peter, who has different faces, depending on whether he's with Jesus or not with Jesus, doesn't he? And the last thing that was on the screen on Sunday morning, the last statement, the last question said, does your praise reflect your practice? Does your praise reflect your... Sorry, the other way around. Does your practice reflect your praise? Does, does what we do on Monday to Saturday reflect what we do here on Sunday? Or are they two different lives? Well, we'll continue this story through the, acts of, uh, through the events of Easter this Sunday. We'll continue the story on Sunday. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, as they say. And what a great day it will be. But today, tomorrow, perhaps spend a moment and, and remain in Good Friday and Easter Saturday, the in-between times, and ask God, Lord, what can you show me in these in-between times, these in-between events? Let's pray. Lord, today as we uh, face the events once more of the cross and remember what you did for us, Lord, we remember, Lord, that you took the shame, the ridicule, the mockery, complete loss of reputation and standing for us. It's not an easy thing, Lord, for any of us to risk our reputation, our standing with our colleagues, with our friends. But Lord, we pray that Going from this place, Lord, help us to think on these things. And I pray, Lord, that this week our practice may indeed reflect our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing again of that, what this is all about. It's, it's grace in the end. That's the simple word that we have as Christians, the simple one word to reflect everything that goes on this weekend.